just throw a 180-foot curveball? <laughs> like, what are we doing here? Jordan, come in. I yell to him. He jogs in. Coach, what do we got? What do we got? I go, did you just throw a curveball at full bore 180 feet before a game? You're not even pitching today. He's like, well, Brian was, was telling me he had a great curveball, and I couldn't let him get away with that. <laughs> and I said, you can't have a catch with Brian anymore. He goes, what? Brian's my friend. They go, listen to me. I love Brian. You love Brian. Don't have a catch with Brian anymore. Because you're on a different mission than Brian. Brian's a great kid. He's going to be here for a couple of years. He's going to have a great, nice little high school career. There's something more for you, Jordan. I still think today there's an outside chance that I've listened to more podcasts than any human should. And um, because of it, I was like, this is a great medium for me. I can hear questions. And it fed my classroom. Hmm. So what I found myself doing is listening to business and marketing podcasts with authors and then letting it help my English class. You're dialed in to the ABCA's Calls from the Clubhouse podcast, connecting our coaches with some of the best baseball minds in our game. Now here's your host, Jeremy Sheetinger. Take a second, reach over, and ever so gently crank up the volume in your speakers as we are broadcasting from the ABCA National Office here in Greensboro, North Carolina. Welcome back or welcome to our Calls from the Clubhouse podcast, your baseball coaching source for certified audio gold and the place where you come to connect with the very best baseball minds in our game. 140 episodes in and we are just starting to get loose here in the studio, working up a lather, but loving the opportunity to bring these fantastic conversations to our community of lifelong learners each and every week. We appreciate all of you who dial in with us. We know you're on the other end of the call, challenging thought, exploring new territories for yourself, and finding nuggets of audio gold to bring back to your programs, your players, as we stay the course on this path towards personal growth. Do us a favor after the show, make sure you are subscribed to the podcast on all of your devices. Take a few minutes and leave us a review and a rating to help more folks find this show. And please share the links with your friends, your players, the parents in your program, throw some tweets out there and let your followers know that you are working hard to get better as a coach and we appreciate your help. Connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter. Find us at ABCA1945. Over 11,000 members around the world and we would love to add each of you to our fraternity. So head over to our website, abca.org for more information on what we offer back to our coaches. And for the visual learners out there, we have a few stops for you. Convention videos galore on our website, abcavideos.org. Hundreds of videos across all facets of the game, plus our revamped YouTube channel. Find it at youtube.com slash abca1945. More videos are waiting for you on that page with many more in the works. And if I can help you in any way at all, please feel free to reach out to me directly on Twitter and Instagram at CoachSheets3, or you can shoot me an email at Sheets, S-H-E-E-T-S, at abca.org. few shout-outs really quick, just some impressive tweets that went out this past week. First and foremost, hats off to the crew from last week's podcast with Butch and Wes, Tanner and Doug. Amazing feedback and engagement coming back from that show. We just appreciate and value those fine men and who they are in our community. Also to John Altman out in Omaha. He enrolled himself in Tractor Cab University, one of the best ones I've seen so far. He dropped that that golden wheat he was watching matched the audio gold coming through his earbuds. So awesome, John. Thanks for that. Much love, my friend. 
And my dear friend Ashley Bolton with great feedback and tweets and DMs. Always love connecting with learners like Ash. Well inside of the hashtag trust tree. And there's so many more to go through. But please, if you're listening in your car or your truck, on the mower, pulling weeds, rocking babies to sleep, tweet at us. Let us know where, when, and then what is coming through those speakers for you. We would love to connect with each of you. And the last shout out, sending huge thanks to our great friends and longtime ABCA partners over at Rawlings. And we want to talk about their new Quattro Pro Batline. This is a collision of their very best technologies. It's a combination of a newly constructed inner barrel, which is going to offer us a larger sweet spot and a faster, more balanced swing, while also eliminating barrel drag through the zone. And that is thanks to the stiffer Focus Flex from the redesigned collar assembly. It's available in multiple weights and lengths, and you can also check out the all-new Quattro Pro Bat and their entire product line on their website, Rawlings.com. That's Rawlings, R-A-W-L-I-N-G-S.com. We hope to see you join Team Rawlings today. And finally, we have arrived at this week's guest, and what a treat to present four-year continuous member of the ABCA and dedicated lifelong learner, a thriving member of this podcast community with Brookfield, Connecticut's own Joe Ferraro joins our call and brings his A-game to the airwaves this week. Many of our listeners and followers have heard Joe reference many times on this very show, or if you've been out on the Barnstormers Trail with us, a former college and high school coach who also has spent the past 20 years inside the high school classroom, and then the past 98 episodes building his own podcast and brand of the 1% Better Project. He's an amazing person and learner. Joe jumps on to take us through his steep learning curve, becoming a college coach at the tender age of 21. Yes, you heard that right, 21 years old. And working through that experience, which led him back into the high school ranks, maturing along the way, finding perspective, to where now Joe spends his time outside the high school classroom, interviewing world-class leaders and authors, speakers on his 1% Better podcast, which is a must-listen for any coach, player, or parent dialing in here. It's plus-plus information on his feed and genuinely someone that just loves to help, or in his own words, loves to be useful. It's a fun walk with Coach Ferraro, so join us in as we welcome in Joe Ferraro, proud ABCA member and curator of the 1% Better Project, as he is our guest on this week's Dugout Chatter episode. So get ready, coaches. This great show is coming at you right now. Coaches, thanks for dialing into our Calls from the Clubhouse podcast. We're heading up to the great state of Connecticut for our very first call into the podcast and a tremendous member inside our association, obviously a great friend of mine. I'm proud to introduce the 1% Better podcast host and obviously loyal ABCA member, Joe Ferraro. Joe, Joe, thanks for jumping on with us, my friend. Sheets, to hear the intro from this side, <laughs> unique vantage yes. point, man. Yes, well, it's a different perspective, but I knew you'd appreciate that. And no truth to the rumor that the reason you're having me on is because of the exclusivity of the nutmeg slash constitution state. <laughs> has nothing to do with that at all. Um, if anything, it has uh, everything to do with the fact that I know you bring extreme value to our listener base and certainly you're, you're a subscriber to our podcast and inside of our community. Uh, and it's a no brainer across every front. I think our listeners will figure that out pretty quickly. Yeah, I've been dipping in and dipping out of past episodes, man. You guys um, have done something really special here. And to join the list of people that you've had on from high school coaches 
professional coaches, college coaches. I've tried to dip my toes into some of those waters, and man, I'm just I'm just so fired up to be here and try to connect with some of the coaches, some men and women in the association that have inspired me. And and man, this is this is my job is to not mess it up. Just try to <laughs> connect with you guys, and and thank you so much for having me. It's awesome. We've laid it on a platter for you, so you can't screw it up. Um, but let's go into this right away, because again, you're talking about four years continuous in the ABCA, and. Uh, from my vantage point, I have the the real privilege of seeing you first get involved with ABCA uh, and then certainly get entrenched within our community. You've been an ABCA chat uh, member for a number of years, but again, podcasting and certainly for you and me, uh, having a, a good support system in between episodes and as we've both grown our podcast, but get into the ABCA experience in terms of coaching for so many years and really not uh, maybe dipping your toes into what we're about, but then the last few really getting entrenched in the community. Maybe what's your vantage point on that? Yeah, well, when you say four years, it actually immediately fills me with mixed emotions. So <laughs> okay. I've been coaching since I was 21 years old. I'm sitting here today at 41, and I'm a little embarrassed to only be a member for four years. But I know full transparency. I didn't talk about sharing this on air, but how long have you been doing the uh, the podcast here? We're going on uh, a little over three and a half years. And there you have it. That's uh, full transparency. You, my friend, were the reason that I joined. Now, I know and you know that you're a piece of a team mm -hmm. and you're a part of a, of a process and an organization that does amazing things. Mm -hmm. But uh, when I think of things like Butch Chafin and talking about, you know, just what you've been able to bring to the forefront. Um, I actually joined the ABCA because I heard this podcast week after week mm. and I heard the, the resources that you were bringing on. So even though it's been going on for years and years and years, and that's where the embarrassment comes in where I wasn't joined. Once I saw what you were bringing to the table from a non-selfish point of view, mm -hmm. highlighting the work of others, men and women, umpires and coaches that have been doing it on multiple levels. And I said, what am I waiting for? I said, <laughs> I'm not even currently coaching this year yeah. and I've renewed for two years. So I, uh, I plan to be a member for life, yeah. um, and I, I, I know you don't want to hear this, but I give a lot of that credit to you as the face of it. And again, that doesn't belittle any of the work behind the scenes from men and women that I don't know by name, but you were, were the vantage point for me that, that said, if this is someone that the ABCA is putting forward, I want to be a part of it. Mm, wow, that's that's huge, man. I really appreciate that. I, I almost feel like on behalf of our association, I have to ask are there any truth to the rumors that we may see you walk on the floors in Nashville? <laughs> well, if you do, it will not be because I've heard so much about the great city of Nashville. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm a big Charleston fan. And when I tell people about how much I love the city of Charleston, mm -hmm. they say you've seen nothing until you see Nashville. And then I say, if I go to the convention, I know that I'm not seeing the outside version of Nashville. <laughs> sure. That is true. That <laughs> I'm going to be drinking cold brew with <laughs> high school coaches from Wyoming. And, mm -hmm. and I would love that. So it's, it's interesting. If I'm being honest, the reason I haven't gone to the, the convention in the last four years is because of my work in the classroom. And I know that some teachers have different schedules than others, but I'm a guy. And I think I learned this from my father who owns a cafe. I show up for work every day, literally. Like I, I might not be there my hundred percent best every day who can be, but I, I just, I don't call out sick. I, I don't take personal days and mm -hmm. I'd have to have a very uncomfortable conversation with my administration, which has been in transition recently and say, Hey, I know we just got back from two weeks off from the holiday break. Can I fly out to X city or Y city? And I'm not saying people don't do it. Yep. It's just a personality trait that I have where I'm thinking I got to see Zach and Sally on Monday. 
and now I'm in Nashville and I'm going to make it happen. It's okay. not something that I can commit to on air. Um, you have done a great job in a pleasant way of making me feel guilty for not being there. Um, <laughs> sure. but, but I know that's what I bring to the table. hundred percent is guilt. Yeah. You know what it is though? It's, it's, it's every single person I've talked to tells me how great it is. Yeah. So it's not like, Oh, they were all wrong. I know it's amazing, but I think what's important to highlight here is even someone who hasn't been there and me, I've been an active member on the chats. Yeah. I've been reading all the, the website information. I've been talking to you behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. And I think that that would be a tremendous highlight to the ABCA production. But in no way do I feel robbed by the experience. I feel totally plugged in. I feel that I have gotten phone calls, text messages, and email address, you know, emails from people um, that I've never met in person that just encourage me on the podcast or mm. say, Hey, have you thought about this? And, and it's just incredible that that organization is able to kind of set that up. So whether or not I, I ever coach between the white lines again, I feel completely connected with a group of educators and yeah. teachers and mentors that I, I don't think you can put a price on. You certainly can't put a price on the membership that you guys are offering, yeah. which I've been telling you to raise the price for years. <laughs> sure. I don't want to make any enemies here, but it's, you talk about value. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Well, I, I haven't looked and this is a, uh, maybe an error in pre-production research, but um, you know, I haven't looked at your calendars for next year, but this is the situation where next year's convention falls into this real touchy period where it's the second through the fifth. And so if you've got New Year's Day off, you probably got the next day off. That's a Thursday and a Friday. So maybe you've got that whole week off, which Joe may open the window that Nashville might be your first convention. I'm just, I'm trying to present the solutions and I'm not going to maybe stand by and take on your excuses. Wow. Okay. I think at this point I have to have union representation in this conversation yep, yep. Well, we'll because I feel, I feel a nudge, <laughs> but you know what? That's actually something to think about. Yes. I'm telling all, you all kidding aside. Yeah. Um, so let's go into career path in baseball because you do have a, an extensive career path and actually some really neat highlights inside. That's going to open up the entire first half of this conversation. So take us from, Going into college baseball, actually, you can probably take us back just a little bit further because I know you got some really good highlights from your high school career. But take us through that entire path inside the game and get us up to uh, your last day in coaching. There's a lot of snapshots to look at. And I think um, one thing that I've learned from, from your podcast is that when we go through the college recruiting process, so many of us pre-internet made just tremendous mistakes. 100%. <laughs> right? Yeah. And I think... I know when people say, oh, I live with no regrets, and that gets tricky for me because if you're going to evaluate decision-making and you're going to think about how you live your best life and how do we get better, I think that I'm not sure regret is the right word, but you do need to think and learn from mistakes. And mm -hmm. I applied to uh, 12 colleges coming out of high school, and I got accepted to 11 of them. I won't name the, the Northeast school <laughs> with a very good academic reputation sure. that beat Notre Dame in 1993 that rejected me. The thing was, this, uh, the rejection was as thin as litmus paper, but um, we won't name that school. But out of the 12 school sheets, the only school that was Division One that recruited me was Pace University. Okay. Guess where I went to school? Pace, 100%. <laughs> Pace yeah. University, yeah. because when I turned around and told my friends I was going to college, where are you playing? Well, I'm playing D1. And mm. I've heard this on your podcast time and time again. Mm -hmm. So if we think of the domino effect of my life, going to Pace and student teaching where I student taught and eventually meeting my wife and looking at my son, Joey and Charlie, there's no way I can sit here with you in studio and say I made the wrong decision right. because I wouldn't be where I am. That being said, there were a number of division three schools that 
were very interested. And I was interested, but mm -hmm. it just came down to that status, that immaturity, that I don't know any better, so why not go there? So I'm here to tell you, I, I from a number of metrics, made the wrong choice in not going to a Division three school. Hmm. Later, when I ended up coaching at the Division three level, with all humility, I would watch my players, and I would say to myself, I would have been a Division three all-conference player with a chance to be an all-region or all-American player senior year, if I'm being totally honest, mm -hmm. instead of a Division One role player, part-time starter. Well, you know what you did get at Pace? And if you remember this a couple of years ago, we discussed this. You had that sweet Gildan apparel <laughs> deal. That's what you got when you went to Pace. You didn't get Nike or Adidas. You got Gildan, which was awesome. <laughs> My coach, God rest his soul, when we went to campus, Sheets, he handed you a pile of navy blue sweats mm. with like a, a, a Charlie Brown type font. Yep. And you got no say in the number. You got no say in the material. <laughs> a hood was out of the question. Yeah. We can go on for days yeah. and days. And I thought for a second you were going to be serious because what I got at Pace was perspective, right? I, there you go. I got the idea that um, I wasn't a Division One. Look, I was a Division One player. But what does that mean, yeah. right? I could have been on a team like some of the people that I admire that have been on your show competing for national titles, yep. right? But again, I think it's important to note, I can't say, oh, I regret it, I made a huge mistake. But if we're looking at how we can help coaches make good decisions with the recruiting process and trying to add some perspective, I think it's important to be completely clear with that. Mm -hmm. So I loved it, I made some lifelong friends, but I think if I was gonna slot myself, I would have been a division three standout. I think that's important for young listeners to hear. Sure. Now, what I did get is after I graduated in 1999 from Pace, we had a coaching change. And the new coach, very laid back, met him at the alumni game. And he says, hey, what are you thinking about doing after graduation? I said, well, I just landed a teaching job. I'm an English teacher at Valhalla High School. I'm excited to get started. I'm going to do some coaching. He's like, have you ever thought of any college coaching? I mean, I'm 21 years old. Right. I, I, I chose a school to play D1. Of course I thought of college coaching. But I'm going to probably start at the, the JV level and just kind of work my way up. He says, well, the, there's a school in Westchester named Manhattanville College that, that needs a coach like today. I'm like, it's August. I don't really understand. He's like, well, they start to the fall. They have no coach. Emergency situation. Do you want to interview for the job? I said, I'm, I'm, I'm a full-time teacher. I just spent four <laughs> years studying education. Right. I don't think I could just become a full-time coach. He's like, oh, no, this isn't full-time. This is part-time. And I couldn't process it. Sheets. I was like, what do you mean part-time? Like, sure. we're, we're recruiting. We're cutting the grass. We're, mm -hmm. How could it be part-time? He says, they need someone today. If you want, I'll put your name in. And I said, well... I mean, I know everything there ever is to know about baseball. I might, as well, <laughs> I might as well apply. Sure. And uh, he actually put my name in. And on the night of open house at Valhalla, I went to meet my parents at Valhalla. And then there was an, uh, a banquet, not a banquet, an interview process where like welcoming all the fall athletes. Mm -hmm. And I went there to Manhattanville and met the team. And Sheets, I kid you not. After I gave a 15-minute address to the team, which I didn't even know I was giving, there was like 12 guys. They huddled in the corner, and they started talking and whispering. They came back, and they go, okay, we're going to give you a shot. I'm like, excuse me? <laughs> that was the interview process. Oh, wow. They chose on the spot to give me a shot to be the fall coach, an NCAA Division three head coach for the fall. I had just graduated. 21 I years old. One 21, I'll be 22 in October, have not taught one lesson on grammar and literature yet, and I'm a valiant. <laughs>
Now, I didn't know what I was getting into. Sure. And we can go down a, a lot of different paths about that. But basically, I inherited a program that was 5 and 21. Um, and they didn't care how old I was. In fact, I had it. Might as well jump right into it. Yeah. I had a guy come up to me and, and he says, coach, uh, pitching. And I'm like, wow, we, we got a pitching coach already. We're, we're, we're doing well. Like we already have a pitching coach. That's my weakness when it comes to coaching. This guy had a, had a graying beard and receding hairline. And he, he was an older guy. And he says, pitching. And I saw, oh, man, this is great. How long have you been on the staff? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, you said you're the pitching coach. He goes, no, no, no. I'm the pitcher. <laughs> I said, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not sure. I just got hired by a huddle down the hallway. <laughs> sure. You're the pitcher. Very he goes, my, my, my name's Vinny. Uh, uh, I'm a junior. I go, you're a junior. Well, welcome. Welcome, man. We love to have you. We talked for five minutes. He walks away. I, there was a kid that kind of saw me kind of floundering. He walked up to me, another kid on the team. I said, listen, I don't mean to be rude. I, I got a little thrown off there. I didn't understand what Vinny was saying to me. He said, Vinny's a 41 uh, year old junior. I said, okay, welcome to Manhattanville. Yeah. Let's get going. Get this and, thing going. Uh, it came out later that he had pitched 91 innings as a sophomore at Manhattanville. Wow. The team was five and 26 sheets, excuse me, five and 21 yeah. in 26 games. He threw 91 innings at the age of 40 workhorse. And we're off and running. And, yeah. and to, to jump forward, he, he ended up getting into, um, we got into some serious disagreements about how many innings he should be pitching. And he just didn't, he literally didn't feel like he was getting enough work throwing 45 innings the following year once we started recruiting. But I think it, it's a microcosm. It's a great story. I think, I think there's a lot of lessons I can pull out from it to, to keep it somewhat brief. Um, the internet wasn't in full throttle. You know, I think now... If I could look back on that event, I think that could have been an incredible marketing approach. I think that could have been um, a great story, yep. a 21-year-old coach, a 41-year-old coach. Instead, what I did was I thought it was, you know, if I'm being honest, a little embarrassing, right? If I was going to mm -hmm. build a program and our best player was 41, I, I was like, how can we put ourselves out there as a program to, to really be something special if this is what we're doing? So yeah. when I look back now 20 years later, I think I looked at that probably as close to 180 degrees wrong as I could have. Um, but I was 21. I mean, I was literally trying to conquer the baseball world. And I didn't think that was the best way to do it. And uh, there's some great symmetry to that story, which I can get into later. But I think when we talk about the beginnings of my coaching sheets, that was, that was it. That was yeah. the snapshot. Oh, my goodness. And then, of course, moving away from college, you did that for about six seasons. Is that correct? I did five years there. Five years. And, I, and okay. the thing that I think that's important to mention is that, you know, every coach listening now has done something similar, but they didn't have dugouts. So years later, when I went back as a, as a high school coach to play on that campus, I would just knock on the dugout and I'd be looking at some of my players and I'd say, I built this. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, yeah. What'd you do? No, no. I literally built this. <laughs> like I don't have a carpentry skill in my body, but I was on the roof hammering nails into these dugouts that still stand today. Wow. So the program at Manhattanville, listeners will know, they've gotten some good traction over the years. Mm -hmm. And um, they, they were basically dormant. And obviously some of that had to do with the work that we put in and some of that had to do with um, the athletic directors that have come on and did a lot of things and put resources into it. At one point, Chief, I was preparing for our discussion today. We, we had three straight rookie of the years. So hmm. we did some things with the recruiting process with smoke and mirrors that I had no clue what I was doing that I'd love another shot at metaphorically in my head. Right. Yeah. But basically 
that was something that we were very proud of. We ended up winning 20 games before I left. And I mean, I was, you talk about coaches that are multitasking. I was leaving the classroom at three o'clock speeding down 287. I don't think there's a person alive that can put sanitary socks and stirrups on while you're driving (laughs) in a more skillful way than I can. I still change in the car sometimes and I get like the shakes because I'm like, I don't want to live this way. But for, for five years, as these coaches know, I was, I was everything at the program, cutting the lawn, Mm -hmm. the painting and striping and all the things that coaches do on the, on the regular without having to also teach at school. So anyway, left Manhattanville there after five years and, um, went all the way back to my roots, which was why do you love baseball? Mm -hmm. And, um, the athletic director at Valhalla said, we're starting a seventh and eighth grade team. took me a little while to swallow the pride and say, Hey, I was a college coach. Now I'm going to coach seventh and eighth grade. But on the first day of tryouts, after I said, yes, you had these kids, these 12 and 13 year old kids with wide eyes and some baseball skill. And relatively speaking, if I'm being honest, more skilled than some of the players I had five years ago relative at their stage of life, right? Like they weren't better than college players, but you knew that if you were recruiting them, they were eventually going to be college players. And these kids were hungry and these kids had had a great little league program. And these kids basically reignited the flame I had for coaching. Hmm. And I still think of these kids today, they're 25 and 26 years old. And these were the first kids that after you leave the college game, you play for six athletic directors in five years, you share an office with four softball coaches in five years, you build different things and you're just stressed out of your mind. And if you ever want to start a family and kind of be a real educator, Mm -hmm. you can't sustain it. So many people listening know what I'm talking about. And then seventh and eighth grade kids reignited it for me. And it was just an amazing, amazing experience. Wow. Yeah. I think one more thing to mention before I jump in is when I, when I then became the JV coach at Valhalla, um, I learned something. I learned that the mistakes I made in college, they could be eradicated by doing some of the good things from college at the high school level. So what I've learned now stepping back is that Many of our high school coaches that we know in the association, people I've become friendly with that, that just know everything about the X's and O's mm-hmm. are also providing a world-class experience. So you see some of these major league teams that dress up on road trips. Well, everybody in the country has some version of wear a, a, a collared shirt on game day or wear the jersey around. And one year I just said, you know, I don't know what team inspired me, but let's wear Hawaiian shirts on game day <laughs> at Valhalla. So now here we are, JV baseball, junior varsity baseball, and we got kids of all body types rolling around trying to borrow a Hawaiian shirt for game day. We have guidance counselors coming up to us saying, hey, it must have must be a game today. I saw so-and-so <laughs> with this. And they didn't realize at first that we were marketing. We were saying, hey, we're, we're doing something a little bit different here. Yeah. So what I realized kind of in my second phase of, of coaching, if you will, is that if I'm going to go to another high school, if I'm ever going to leave the Hala and not as a teacher, but as a coach, I want to bring something different. I want to intentionally run the program differently. I want to expose them to something they could never get. See, the kids at Bronxville, um, Roger Goodell is a native of Bronxville, right? And okay. for whatever you think of his politics, you know what his bank account is. Yeah. So Bronxville is a one square mile town where the fathers and mothers are psychologists and hedge fund managers and artists and very, very well-to-do. Well, I can't provide for them things that they can't get at home except in the baseball environment. Mm. So by that time of the career sheets, I said to myself, they, they might have wealthy fathers and mothers, 
but will they will they ever see the discipline that we're going to run with while still having fun? Are they going to enjoy laughing a little bit right now when 10 years from now they're going to be taking over Wall Street jobs? They're going to have high pressure jobs that are very demanding and economically very resourceful. But can we laugh a little bit? Can we can we have some fun while still building a program? Mm. And, you know, I, I, I tell the story sometimes I, when I took the job. The athletic director said, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but I think one thing we should really consider is merging the baseball program with the neighboring town. I said, wait a minute, you, you want to get rid of the Bronxville baseball? No, we're going to just combine it with Tuckahoe, where the kids at Bronxville will then play for the Tuckahoe team, where their colors and we'll just merge. And I'm sure that people listening know this happens sometimes. I just didn't like anything about it. Sure. I said, you know, in the short term, that would be a, a you know, a, a solving point. But in the long term, what would that tell us about battling through things, trying to get through it? So our first team sheets had 13 players um, on the varsity team. So, you know, 13 players varsity, that's no JV. So yeah. let me let me be clear about that. Nine through 12, 13 baseball players. <laughs> so <laughs> the pitching staff wasn't what I would call thick. Yeah. And um you know, what we did there was we, we brought in basically um, a college-type environment where we could. And believe me, there were some compromises to me be made when a kid says to me, I have clarinet practice at 8 o'clock. I have an ACT tutoring at 8.30, and I can't make the team dinner. Like, you, you know, mm-hmm. I wasn't the my way or the highway person. Again, this is only three years ago. But what I did was lay out some expectations, some standards, some core values, and we built the program little by little and with a little bit of good luck and with a great uh, crop of young players that came up and just like Valhalla, some, some young players and some young coaches and parents that were helpful. All of a sudden now when we left, we were a playoff team mm-hmm. and that was three years later. And uh, many people listening might, might know that um, this last, p- this past year I walked away to spend more time at home and to spend more time on the podcast that I spent a lot of time on. And with that, they had their most successful year to date. So they won a playoff game, 14 win team. And it's just a place of satisfaction. As I sit here today and talk to you and we think about a program where an athletic director, one of the most respected in the County says, I think it might be the right idea to merge. And then today they're looking at a 14 win program that has kind of defied the odds. So it's, it's, it's really fun to think back on. Wow. Okay. Lots to unpack, but I do want to go back to a few things. I think there's some, some nuggets in there. We want to make sure we carve out for our listeners. One is you, know, you got to think about coaching at 21 years old, and I don't even want to go into what maybe I would have done at 21. Um, <laughs> it, it just it wasn't college coaching at that time. I, I, I certainly wouldn't have attacked it, maybe in the spirit that you did. But what are some of the takeaways when you look back on those moments that if there is a young listener um, that maybe we get wrapped up in a lot of different things? Certainly you don't have perspective to draw upon. You don't have experience to draw upon. But what are the moments where you go, wow, I probably – probably fell over that other side of the fence. I talked to that young guy and bring him back over. What would you point to? Yeah, I think, I think to frame it, it's, it's this conversation with you today. I, I know this podcast didn't exist when I was, was coaching at Manhattanville, but if it did or something like it, I would have dreamed of having this conversation with you, but I would have dreamed about having it because I was the, one of the best college coaches in the country. Hmm. Because when you thought about Joe Ferraro, you knew I was an X's and O guy. You knew that I knew how to steal third better than anybody. You knew that I liked to bunt in the right situations. And you knew that I knew how to teach a changeup. And and those are the things that I really thought would have been my legacy. 
Hmm. You know, just a guy that I used to say, I, I used to pride myself in being able to have a baseball conversation with anyone in the country. Like I never felt I'm talking to a, to a gentleman and he's talking baseball at a level that I can't comprehend. Like I was that plugged in. I was, I was just reading it and I was, I was just sleeping it. Well, 20 years later, um, I, I, I can't imagine how many men out there right now and women know more about the X's and O's of baseball than me, you know, and I just have to be honest about that. The technology, the, the different resources, as I've poured myself into reading nonfiction books about leadership and decision-making, these, these, these coaches are out there bleeding and sweating, learning about the important things that, that will make a player better. And I just couldn't have more respect for that. But because of that framing, when I look back to me being 21 cheats, I got ejected once or twice a year, whether I needed it or not. Mm -hmm. It was, it was a dentist appointment. <laughs> um, I remember one time kicking a bucket over and baseballs going flying, like, like literally out of the movies. Um, and I think, I think it's safe to say that every official in the country, or at least the Northeast hated me. And it's so funny because people that I know now that I didn't know then, they literally can't picture it. They're like, I don't see that part of you. And my desire to win was, was so high. Um, I would never be a cheater. I would never be crossing the line. But I was a hard breakup double play guy. Mm -hmm. I was a don't take any crap, don't talk to the other team kind of guy. Don't fraternize. Like hardcore, what are we going to do to win today? And I'll be honest with you, when we, when, you know, I have a lot of respect for officials, but I think we all know the truth, which is when a team isn't very good, which is a lot of the teams I've had, you don't tend to get the borderline calls. <laughs> sure. And I don't know if that's politically correct to say, so I'll say it and you don't have to. Right. But there's a reason why certain teams in the NFL seem to get the calls, mm -hmm. because what I've learned in my second life is like there's there's biases that we have. In all walks of life, whether we want to admit it or not. So can you imagine layering on top of that an arrogant, uh, confident to the point of cocky 22-year-old coach who is going to come out and tell you how bad you are? Sure. Like it was just a, it was a mess. So I, I have then now in my second life become the gentleman to officials. The let's not argue about this. The let's take out the lineup card and, and pretend we're asking about a change mm -hmm. and just ask Johnny, hey, what'd you have there? Like all the vocabulary has shifted 180 degrees. Um, but I, I felt like the the razor sharp line between victory and, and losing depended sometimes on a call. Because you always hear that expression, oh, a call's never cost anyone a game. Well, you've never coached at Manhattanville in 1999, <laughs> 2000, <laughs> sure. where, where the margin for error was so bad. And they can turn around and say, well, you shouldn't have let it get to that. Well, I had one pitcher and he, he was approaching middle age. Yeah. So it's not like we, we were trying to be that close, but here's the reality. I, I was just too impatient. Mm -hmm. I was going about it all wrong. Um, getting ejected and getting a reputation for being that kind of guy. And I didn't want to, I didn't plan on talking about it this long, but the reality is that's not going to help your program. Yeah. It's not going to endear you with six athletic directors yeah. and it's, it's not the kind of legacy that you want to leave behind. So, that's the first thing. The second thing that you always talk about is relationships and you can't run from that. Um, and, and, you know, we talk about wedding invites and birth announcements. And, and from that phase of my life, I haven't gotten a lot of those. And I'll, I'll say two things about that. One, the, the kind way to talk to myself is I, I was 21. So 
the idea that you know several of my players were older than me, not just Vinny. Um, I, I don't know that I was able, sophisticated enough to draw a boundary and build relationships at the same time. So it was about hustle and do it this way and all the bad stereotypes that you hear. But if I'm being kind, it, I don't know that if I went back in time, it would be fair to say to me, do it differently because I was still 21. Now, if I did it at 41, no brainer. 21, not capable of it. But the lesson I think that people can take from that is um, it's a blessing and a curse to be thrown into that spot, right? Sure. Was never an assistant coach. Never, never an assistant coach. Didn't, didn't mentor at the knee of someone who's saying, here's how you recruit. I remember the lacrosse coach saying to me, what's your recruiting system? <laughs> I, I, I had no idea what he meant. Sure. Like literally no idea what he meant. Yeah. And this is where we started. He took out a red piece of paper that had a pre-typed format on it. That was an information card to send out to recruits. And he says, here's what we do to lacrosse players. We send this out, fill it out if you're interested. And then we follow up sheets. It was starting there. Like I had apps. So I was mm -hmm. just picking up the phone, calling programs that I knew were good and saying, do you have any good players? It was, it was ridiculous. It was nonsensical. And yet I didn't know any better. Yeah. So I feel like there's got to be a million lessons that, that you could tease out just from that alone. Wow. Okay. Let's, uh, I'm, I always go back to, I mean, there's maybe a moment where things shifted. Um, a moment, maybe it was coaching the seventh and eighth grade team where you went, Oh, wow. I've been going about this all wrong or man, can I, I can't believe that's who I was or how I acted. Do you have an aha moment or do you have a, oh, a yeah. shift that, that you really went, well, there, there's the, there's the secret sauce right there. And I wasn't even close. Yeah. I went, Oh man, so many, but a snapshot for sure that jumps to mind is when I was doing tryouts and, uh, the athletic director says, well, remember when we, when we cut the team, we're going to, we're going to meet with everybody individually. And I'm like, Whoa, okay. Um, now that's old hat to people talking. I know that yeah. we don't post it. We don't post the sheet, but I said, all right. And, and now sheets, you're seeing kids cry. You're yeah. seeing kids face to face, kneecap to kneecap. Why am I not on this team? Now we had 40 kids come out for a seventh and eighth grade team. We ended up taking 18 players and that was on the high side. Um, so that's, that's one snapshot, literally saying to a kid, Hey, it's a no for this year. We hope you stay with the program. So that's a moment that I stay with and giving them mm -hmm. the dignity and, and that communication. And there were these two kids, Rob and Jordan and Rob was probably the size of my son is now at nine years old. Rob was by all accounts should not have been a high school baseball player at first. And he was diving for balls during warmups, you know, having a catch, which is not a good sign sheets yeah. that people can't have a catch, but he's still diving, you know, instead of letting it go by him. And he's saying, come on guys, we got to get this. And I came home and told my wife, I said, listen, we got a kid on the team that lives and dies for baseball. And she looks at me and she said, he's a bleeder. So what do you mean? She goes, he'll bleed for the team. He'll, he'll lie down in traffic for this team. Wow. And I said, yeah, he's the bleeder. This kid is the bleeder. He's diving, sacrificing what little body he has. And, and that was like, wait a minute, like they're not college players yet, but I could get into this a little bit. And then one other snapshot that comes to mind is the other kid I mentioned, Jordan, who would later go on and, and play at Bucknell and uh, win a state championship as, a, as the winning pitcher. He's mm -hmm. really had some amazing stuff. Um, he, who I've stayed close with, and, and, and um, uh, he's the, the wedding inv invitation that I've been waiting for, and we'll talk about that later, I'm yeah. sure. But at one point, I see him long tossing. This is a couple of years later, and he's, he's long tossing. I turn and I look, and I see rotation on the ball sheets. I see that little dot at the top, and I'm like, 
did he just throw a 180 foot curveball? <laughs> like, what are we doing here? Jordan, come in. I yell to him. He jogs in. Coach, what do we got? What do we got? I go, did you just throw a curveball at full bore 180 feet before a game? You're not even pitching today. He's like, well, I don't want to say the kid's name, but we'll make up a name. Brian was was telling me he had a great curveball, and I couldn't let him get away with that. <laughs> and I said, you can't have a catch with Brian anymore. He goes, what? Brian's my friend. I go, listen to me. And I didn't use the Jim Rohn quote, but if I could have in the moment, I would have said, look, I love Brian. You love Brian. Don't have a catch with Brian anymore because you're on a different mission than Brian. Brian's a great kid. He's going to be here for a couple of years. He's going to have a great, nice little high school career. There's something more for you, Jordan. And if you're going to have curveball catches 200 feet down the left field line, it's nothing wrong with Brian. I just don't think it's the right thing. And then what I did at that point, I didn't realize it until years later, Sheets, I started coaching everybody differently. There you go. I said, well, I said, Jordan needs tough love. When Brian came in, I may have just patted him on the shoulder and said, nice curveball. Like, like I, you know, just giving people what they need. Not, not exactly what they think they want. And I think that, that those moments, they stay with me because we started winning and we started having some fun and the players were very good relative to the high school level. And at that point, I can't get back to Manhattanville days. I can't say, oh man, give me that job now. Mm -hmm. You know, didn't even want it back at that point. We're just having so much fun teaching during the day, having that relationship in class with a kid that you'd later have in the five hole at the game. Those are just priceless moments instead of what are these kids doing all day at Manhattanville? And then I'm going to speed there later and get there after IO. So it's just a wow. different world, man. Different world. I don't want this to get lost on any listener in that in this whole time you've talked through your baseball stuff. You've been in the classroom. We're talking, I think you just finished up your 20th year. Is that correct? Yes. So 20 years in the classroom, which you got to remember too, on two fronts, our community, and, and again, the makeup of the association, we've got a lot of teachers, whether they're youth coaches or travel coaches or high school coaches or even college coaches that teach on the high school or college level. A lot of us on this call know what it's like to be in the classroom. I've taught classes before, and I, and I admire what you do. I admire what all those men and women do in terms of how they get prepared. And, and one of the biggest, I guess, testaments to you, and I think that's why our friendship has always taken a, a real positive turn. And, and certainly why I come back to you a lot is you hit me with this. I think it was two years ago. And you said, you know what? I look back on this year, felt really good about my efforts, felt really good about my plans and the things that, that went well for us. And I made some adjustments. I had a good summer. I really dove back <laughs> into the books and I got, you know, really feel like I got my feet underneath me again. I'm excited. <laughs> I think I'm going to have a good year. <laughs> and you said it in such a way that, that a coach would say it. And I went, wow, someone that would approach the classroom in that way, in that spirit, um, is, is somebody I want to spend more time with. So I, I think my, my question is, when you think about 20 years in the classroom, what are the things that you look back and you can see your shifts in terms of where you've grown, uh, where you've maybe pivoted, uh, and certainly the things that you think work on a daily basis inside the classroom? What would you offer there? Oh, man. Yeah, I actually remember that conversation. And I do. <laughs> your reaction was, was priceless. Yeah, this is year 21 as we record. And yep. I just I just emailed uh, our new principal who asked some questions on a survey saying I'm looking to have the best year of my career. And Later in this conversation, I'm sure I'll give contact information, but I do want to stress that any teacher that's out there, A, I have all the respect in the world for you, mm -hmm. and B, if I could be any of service at any time, I'm here. Um, I, I started out as an eighth grade teacher. You know, I, I always tell people, people ask me, why am I so positive? And, and I used the phrase recently, well, if I look at the data of my life objectively, it's pretty difficult not to be. Mm -hmm. You know, good things have happened to me. 
Um, I've worked hard. I've been in the right place at the right time, like anybody else who's, who's successful. But I just don't see a reason why not to be positive. And uh, a, a great couple of couple of glimpses. So I student taught at, at the school where I'm at now. So I've never been in another school. And uh, I was a seventh grade student teacher. And in my class was the principal's daughter. So every day was a demo lesson. <laughs> And that, and come to think of it, that wouldn't be a bad book. So if anyone wants to write that book, every day is a demo lesson. I'm going to tell you about that. But but every day she would go home. Hey, this is what Mr. Farrar did. This is what he didn't do. And it came to pass where my friends senior year were going out, getting, you know, having fun. And I'm lesson planning. Um, but then when the time came where the job was open for the eighth grade position, uh, my name came to the top of the list because they knew what I was capable of, what my weaknesses were, what my strengths were. Wow. So imagine every teacher listening, your first year teaching and how long it takes some people to learn names. Well, that was taken out of the equation. The first day of class, I knew Matt and Sarissa and Brett and Frank, uh, Mike. He sat there. Randall. These are real name sheets mm-hmm. from 1999. Mm-hmm. Literally, they're the names of the people in my class. And I can go on and on. I can tell you what period they were in. I was so jazzed to, to once again change the world and be the greatest eighth grade teacher ever. And uh, the first day of class, I'm ready to rock and roll. I teach my 20 minute class. The bell rings. Kids don't move. I say, all right, guys, have a great day. No one moves. I go, I don't understand why you're still here. They go, Mr. Ferrar, that was just homeroom. And I'm like, excuse me? Sweat starts dripping down from the temples. Sure. I close the door. Everything I said about being an open door teacher goes out the window. We start doing like, hey, all right, now let's let's assess the textbooks for the next 20 minutes. And I got nothing planned. I was doing a day by day. And I did have some advantages. But I worked through it. And I think that back then it was, it was content first mm-hmm. um, with a little bit of flair and presentation. And now I think it's all about creating an environment in which to learn. And that's the way to get to the content. Hmm. You know, I, I, I got to tell you, I was in a, in a workshop at the end of year 20 and a, the Maya Angelou quote came up and, and we all know the quote and it said, people will forget what you said, but they'll never forget the way you make them feel. Yeah. And when I saw that quote, it was like, I saw it for the first time. Two things struck me. I said, number one, this could be the greatest educational quote of all time. Hmm. Like the, it, it basically says to you, the content is secondary. Baseball wins and losses are secondary, but what environment, what have you said to them? What will, what will you empower them with is first. And I think people listening to this show probably really believe in that quote. Mm-hmm. And most teachers I think do, but it did strike me that I don't think every educator believes that. I think some educators think that if you're a physics teacher, you have to teach physics in a way that teaching physics is the only thing you have to do. And, and I hope that's not the majority, and I'm not perfect, but when you ask about a shift that I've made, I've basically gone all in with, while you're in my class for 40 minutes, how positive can make the environment I want to make it challenging. I want to hit the New York state standards. Mm -hmm. But when that bell rings, I don't want you to leave. You know, this year a kid said to me, I can't believe the period's over. And if a kid's saying that every so often, I got to believe I'm doing something right. And if I look back to day one, when the bell rang and no one left, I was saying, I wish the period was over (laughs) because I don't have enough material (laughs) to make you guys feel special. And uh, over the years, you, you take some tricks and you, you blend the, the teaching with the coaching and, and the reading with the podcast. And, 
it's just gotten me to a place where I feel very, very confident and very, very at home in the classroom. Wow. Okay. Well, it's a good, you know, addition to this thought in terms of the content piece, but having a great conversation with a coach last week and we were talking through, uh, maybe defining culture. And that is, you know, the word that's out there. That is the buzzword. That is the tweet worthy. If you put it out there, likes and retweets are coming because everybody's on this culture kick. Well, that's great. And you got to have that, but at the same time to define it, um, may not be true in that start with your environment. Start with the environment first. What environment are you creating for your program? This is obviously for the classroom. This is for your baseball coaches. This is for softball coaches, for anyone listening. What is the environment that you are creating? Like you mentioned, is it challenging? Is it positive? Is it relational? What is the environment? And then from that, culture is only really a reading on the base of the temperature inside your environment. Do you, you agree with that? Yeah. When you're talking about it, I'm thinking, what does it feel like yes. inside your classroom? Yes. Right. What does it feel like when I go watch your practice? And there's not only one way. I mean, no one knows that better than you and talking mm-hmm. to so many coaches. There's a million ways to do it. But if a kid says to me in the year end survey, which happened this year, I think this course should be a whole year course and not just a half year elective. Mm. I just think like I pinch myself sometimes and say, that has something to do with me, not everything. And to be a small part of that, to create that environment, to help create that environment, it's mind-boggling because yeah. people listening right now have to be thinking, I can't think of, a, of two classes I had in high school that I wish were longer. And when I, when I hear that, those are signposts. Because that's the other thing about culture sheets. We need signs. Mm-hmm. A coach listening can't say, well, my culture is good, but I can't tell you why that's a cop out. We need to have something. We need to have a symptom, whether you're going to say success leaves clues or whether you're going to say, well, one thing we do that I don't think another school is. I heard a great question the other day on a, on a job interview process with, uh, interviewing on a committee. They said a great way to find out the culture in your classroom and on the, on the baseball field or in your office is what's one thing you do at your school, business, et cetera, that you don't think other organizations do. Hmm. And that could be a great clue into what your culture is. Yeah. Cause you might say, well, one thing we do is bagel Friday and deep down, you know, there's other programs doing some version of bagel Friday, <laughs> but at least it gets you starting to think about. What is it that you're doing that's a little bit unique from the school next door? And I think those are are great moments to think about culture, whether it's an activity in your classroom or whether it's the way you post your lineup card. I like it. Well, here's the start in Bagel Friday here in the ABCA National Office. But um, I do want to get to (laughs) – this is entering our fourth fall of Barnstormers Coaching Clinics. If anyone's been to those, you've been at, at one of the clinics that I was at. You've heard me reference when we talk about podcasts, when we talk about the various ones that are out there that are a little outside the baseball sphere. And if guys are interested in leadership, interested in education, uh, they have a lot of different pulls or hobbies or thoughts or or, or, obviously want to expand their palette of podcasting. Yours is always one that comes up. And I talk about the 1% Better podcast and certainly being a friend of the show. I think you were referenced last week uh, on our talk with Butch and the boys. Um, But I just, I admire your podcast. I love what's going on there. Certainly this week, as we send this out, you'll be at episode 98, closing in on 100 episodes. Take us into this project and what have been maybe your personal takeaways? You started on a journey to do this and then a hundred episodes almost into it. You're finding out what? Oh man. Well, first of all, you have been an ambassador of sorts. You, you mm-hmm. were a guest. I want to say guests. I don't know the episode. I'm sure you do, but you were, 
23. Yeah, there yeah. it is. Okay. Yeah, you know what's funny about 23? I, I hit my sweet spot around 21. There it is. <laughs> um, and you were right there. I had to wait until I had a decent product for you. Mm. But um, um, that's a serious comment, by the way, in the sense that if I go back and listen to episode one, um, yeah, I had good guests on. But I, I, I have a more timid version of myself. So I think there's a lesson embedded in that. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, thank you for sharing. And I think what happened was when I moved to Brookfield, Connecticut, because I'm not at all handy, and my wife grew up in a very small house, and we wanted a little bit more space and a lawn and something we didn't have to fix up. And we found this beautiful town of Brookfield, Connecticut. The houses next door to me are, are for sale for anyone listening. <laughs> I will offer a rebate if you move in, if you're a good person, and talk <laughs> baseball with me. But this is the reality. I did not want to listen to sports talk radio. There's nothing wrong with it, but I could only do it for so long. I did not want to listen to what we have here. It's, it's called Z100. Yeah, Z100 in the morning. We're talking, you know, those things for me Yeah. Uh, as a day, as a break every once in a while. But this podcast thing, this radio show on demand in any subject in the world became available right when I moved here. Mm-hmm. And I made a commitment that I would just, it wasn't even a commitment. It was, I like this. I want to listen to this. I may use this in my lesson today, a small piece of it. And I think moving this far, because they do say the research does say that a far commute really does wear on a person like, Hmm. like that, that does, I've done the reading and it says like, if you live far from where you work, it it will wear on you. But I feel like I'm an outlier from the standpoint of how absurdly much I enjoy a, a great podcast. So I would listen to, I always say 1.4 podcasts a day. I would listen to one on the way there and half of one on the way way home or depending on the timing. And I just listened to, I still think today there's an outside chance that I've listened to more podcasts than any human should. And um, because of it, I was like, this is a great medium for me. I can hear questions. And it fed my classroom. Hmm. So what I found myself doing is listening to business and marketing podcasts um, with authors and then letting it help my English class. So on July 1st, 2017, when it was finally time for me to launch my own podcast, after I made my wish list of guests, after I thought about what I wanted to accomplish, Mm -hmm. I was hopeful that coaches could listen to my podcast about decision-making, lifelong learning, leadership, creativity, and they could steal and reverse engineer what I did, steal from the business world, put it onto the baseball field. Mm -hmm. And so far, they've never said it quite that way, but that's what I'm seeing. You know, I got texts today saying, hey, I just, just heard you had a conversation with John Gordon. Is that available yet? I'm like, guys, have you been paying attention? We stack these podcasts. Like, <laughs> sure. we don't release them the day we're recording. Um, but, but to be able to talk to, to people like that, use it in my classroom, and then get feedback from coaches who then say, oh, I, I, I like what you said about, like, I had an episode 97, which was uh, about uh, super thinking and, uh, mental models with, with Gabe and Lauren, someone said, I think that would be great to have some mental models in the baseball field, whether it's as simple as don't make the third out at third base or different, more complex things. I I like the way to make decisions Hmm. on the baseball field. So I think the podcast has changed my life, um, from the standpoint of just doubling down on my lifelong learning and just changing who I am and how I think about things. And then when listeners come back and say that they got something from it, man, you, you know, that feeling, it's just makes you feel on top of the world. hundred percent. Well, it's, I've often said on here and I've told you in, in private as well, that the podcast has certainly changed my life. It's one of those things that you can't 
maybe envision yourself not being involved in some way, shape or form because the process, you know, you and I talking a couple days ago, you and I talking before we hit record this conversation, the after effects of this conversation, the after effects of releasing it to the public and then getting their feedback, that entire process just for one show you talk so much, you learn so much, you, you know, interpret, you, you really internalize and you, you become better just from that one interview. And then you compound that 140 episodes for us, you closing in on a hundred episodes of your own. It's one of those things that you get so much from it well beyond the conversation, much more Uh, beyond just the, the back and forth across the microphones. Oh my gosh. Tremendously. And there's another piece of it that I've recently stumbled upon It's a great new podcast by Michael Lewis, who wrote Moneyball and Mm -hmm. some amazing books. He uh, has this podcast called Against the Rules, which I I didn't think I was going to like. It's about referees in everyday society. And he's just he's just doing an amazing job. Like, I love I love it. At the end, he says, "Okay, we want to thank the people who made this podcast possible. And sheets, he reads 23 names, the mixer, the sound producer. And this person (laughs) did research, the research assistant and they did this talent scout. He must have listed two dozen names. Wow. If you and I were to do that, I think for you and me, isn't it just one name? Yeah. Like like you have support and I have support in different ways, but it's one person. So we live and die with what we're doing and it forces us to raise the standard. It forces us to be compassionate to ourselves. You know, we don't want to completely micromanage every word we say. And yet we still want to get better each episode. And I think people listening to my podcast and going back to the beginning would see that. Mm-hmm. I've been recently listening to some of the earlier episodes of ABCA. I see that with you. Yeah. Um, so it's just, it's a, I don't know what the right word is, but it's like a spiral. You're, you're getting better because you're learning from the conversation with James Clear. Mm-hmm. But then you're getting better because you're asking better questions. And then you're taking those questions and then you're asking your students and it gets to a point where it, it's so exponential. I'm not a math guy, but I think they, they call that geometric growth. Like you, you're growing to a point where you're unrecognizable to someone you used to be. And I know it sounds grandiose, but it's, it's the absolute honest to God truth. No, hundred percent. I don't know if it was you and I in our conversation, but I was maybe having it with someone else of, if you could go back four years ago, who was that dude before you, before we started the podcast, before we took off on Barnstormers, before we went all these different directions? Like, I, I don't even want to talk to that guy. That's not, that's not the guy I want to be associated with. I, I know who I am right now. I know where I'm going right now. Um, but I think it's, it's, you know, to your point, Joe, it, there's so much more, uh, to this growth that I think, um, and I just I tweeted something yesterday from Bruce Brown and proactive coach that was talking about the, gro- the really the, the comfort zone as opposed to the fear zone, the learning zone and the growth zone. And I can go back to literally trying to record episode one, the intro and <laughs> doing it 45 times and just having to stop and do it again, stop and do it again. Cause I kept screwing up and it's gotten to a place where the more you do, the more you learn and the more you learn, you rec- recognize that, dude, I have to have a system. And so my system is pretty tried and true. You got a real good, you know, about peeled back the curtain taste of the system of, of the way that I like to really correspond, the way I like to bring this to light, the way I like to bring the show together. That's the system that works for me. And you and I do, we constantly talk back and forth, find different ways to improve. I'll take some from this guy, take some from what you're doing. And if it can make what I'm doing better, awesome. And I think that constant evolution um, has been propelled 
by this podcast. Certainly having to know that every single week you are responsible 100% from the recording, the editing, the intro, the music, the producing, the uploading, 100% of that's going to come from your desk. That responsibility is one thing, but it's the process around it that I would really feel remiss if it wasn't in my life, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. People sometimes ask us, I'm sure separately, uh, maybe I should start a podcast. Yeah, and it's yeah. like, it, on one hand, the answer is yes, it's, it's great. Like objectively you're, you know, it's, it's a great thing to do, <laughs> but do you listen to more than one podcast a week? Yeah. Do you love podcasts? Are you the kind of person that learns by talking and listening? Or are you more of a writer? Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot that goes into it. Are you willing to commit to 25 episodes, 25 episodes? Yeah. Because I just told you I didn't get good till 21. <laughs> And I don't even know what good means. Right. So yeah, good where I didn't cringe. <laughs> good yeah. where I didn't cringe on a consistent basis. And there's a lot that goes into it. And you and I wouldn't give it up. But yeah. but I don't think everyone listening today that the answer to this conversation is I'm starting a podcast no. tomorrow because Joe did. No, frame it in, in what makes sense for you and what's available to you. And more than that, I think the, the point to bridge all that together is this has certainly got you and I out of our comfort zone. And there was a point where the fear zone was real. And then you move past that. Now you're into learning. And certainly I think we're both flourishing in the growth part of that, of uh, this has been the way that's facilitated growth across a lot of different fronts. But I do want to go into this, man, from your experience. And this is probably an unfair question to ask you. It's just like when somebody, hey, 140 episodes in, what do you what, what do you take away from the best coaches? Well, how long do you have? Because we could mm. go on this for, for hours. But I'm talking from from Donnie Wetrick, Donnie Wetz, uh, <laughs> all the way through James Clear. I mean, you could go through all your the, just the list of folks you've had on. What are some of the takeaways that you think coaches listening right now across all the, the different dynamics that you've covered that you can offer to them right now that may tweak them and make them 1% better? What are some of those you would take away from it? Yeah, you know my guest list pretty well. I do I do feel very confident in my guest list after, like I said, a one-man show. Sure. Um, unlike some, some really, really heavily produced podcasts. Uh, I think first and foremost, the, the thing that keeps jumping to mind when I think about this question is – that the successful people I talk to are doers. Hmm. They don't they don't only read the book. They don't only write the book. They get on the book tour. They they challenge their thinking. They get out there and they do things. So, for people listening, you know, you, I'm not saying jump into a podcast, but please don't sit around and wait for the perfect situation to express your creativity. Hmm. Right? You know, people that listen to my show consistently know that one of my favorite guests and favorite authors is Seth Godin. And Seth points out himself, most of the world doesn't know who he is. Yeah. You know, when I say that name, not every coach listening is going to say, I know who that is. But for me, I start my day by reading a Seth Godin blog every day before I get out of bed. And he's, I just follow him on Twitter. It's a link to his blog. I listen to it and I read it. And next thing you know, it starts my day. Now, what he often says is you have to go before you're ready. I mean, as we record today, his blog post today sheets was about, there's a difference between scrappy and crappy, as he puts it. You don't just ship out crap, but you're never going to be ready. People listening, yep. when were you ready to have children? Oh, we're ready now. Margaret and I are ready. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. You're never ready because once Zach comes along, everything changes. But you're doing the best you can. You prepare for it. You make it work. You have some things you think about. So first and foremost, you, you do, then you adjust. And I think that that shows up in my podcast, as we just talked about over and over, 
getting better and still trying to get better at episode 98. Mm -hmm. um, I think there has to be a reflective piece. Um, I'm not sure who to point to in terms of my guests, um, but there's two edges to that sword. One, um, I heard it originally from Dan Pink. He's in the, he's the, the episode 30s. Um, he talked about a strategy called a pre-mortem um, that comes from the idea of how will this pro project fail? So before I launch the podcast, how does the, pro the podcast fail? Is it mm -hmm. list all the things that if this was going to go wrong, here's how it would go wrong. And I can see that being a hugely important thing for coaches. It's like, if we don't have a good year this year, why is it? Well, it's because James got hurt and he wasn't able to pitch. And well, it's because the parents were, aren't, weren't happy with my level of communication. And the AD um, didn't do a great job of rescheduling the games. And once you start saying that before, now you're able to get solution-oriented before you even started. Mm -hmm. So I did that with the podcast. I think coaches and parents can do that all the time. On the other end of the process is, after I hang up this call with you, let me take a moment and think about how I could have been more prepared, more present, mm -hmm. um, funnier, more serious at the right time, told a better anecdote, that reflective process. So the first thing we get is people are doers if they're successful, then they adjust. And part of that adjustment process is reflection on the front end and the back end. Those are the two things that immediately jump to mind. In 100 episodes, you can imagine I can go a lot of different directions, but those immediately spring to mind. Those are huge. Well, again, can't recommend it enough. Obviously, he's on air. I got to give him the plug, but go check out the 1% Better podcast with Joe Ferraro. It's fantastic. Find it anywhere. Podcaster free. Um, and Joe, obviously, man, keep crushing on that front. Now, let's get into the back half of the show. And then, so the beauty of this is able to put that spotlight on you in terms of who you are and how you're engineered and certainly what makes you tick on a daily basis. So take us into what's something that you read watched or maybe heard that really challenged you to your core that maybe uh, a, a principle that you had really solidified maybe crumbled that concrete a little bit what would you offer i've mentioned it a few times in a thread way which is this idea of decision making right okay. because in a sense i think my podcast could be a podcast about decision making it's also a podcast about learning it's a podcast about improvement hmm. and it, in some ways if you think of the art and science of making decisions um, I think that you can get a lot out of it. I recently had a, a conversation with a colleague where I mentioned a comment from James Clear. He wrote Atomic Habits. It's one of the books I have on my shelf that I'm looking at now. Mm -hmm. I had him on episode uh, 62, and he talked about how willpower is basically a fleeting thing. And if we don't set up environments in which we can succeed, willpower will inevitably run out. And he backs it up with stories and science. He shares how Barack Obama only had two color shirts. So he didn't have to, you know, lose cognitive bandwidth, choosing a shirt every day, something as small as that. If you have a lot of soda in your refrigerator, it's hard to walk past the soda and not drink it, things like that. And I recently talked to a colleague about this and I was like, you know, the science and I tried to say it in a nice way, like not in a very condescending way. Like, oh, no, well, the, the science kind of says that willpower is fleeting. And she texted me about three hours later. She's like, I talked to my husband and uh, we both decided willpower is very strong and not fleeting at all. <laughs> <laughs> I completely disagree. <laughs> disagree but... 100%. Yes. And at that point, I just write, oh, okay. And the conversation kind of ends. Well, if you're a lifelong learner, I, I don't know if the conversation should kind of end that way. And mm -hmm. I don't, I'm not looking for an argument. That's the kind of thing that I've been dipping into. So when you think of you know resources and things that stop me in my tracks, a huge book that I like to dip in and out of is, is called Thinking Fast and Slow. Uh, by Daniel Kahneman. Now, when someone wins the Nobel Prize, 
um, you know, for economics, it mm-hmm. gets my attention. It's not a beach read, but it's also not a book that you see it and go, oh, I have to read all 400 pages in a go. No, Kahneman offers frameworks for how people like you and me can make better decisions in a systematic way. Hmm. And and offering things like that. And then when I recently had um, Gabriel Weinberg and Lauren McCann on, they wrote a book called Super Thinking. They're talking about simple shortcuts to help you make better decisions. So I can quote different mental heuristics and shortcuts that they use, but that's what I've been reading lately, right? So almost all of the reading I do is for the for the podcast, right? I'm not yeah. doing any pleasure reading in isolation. I do love the books that I'm reading because I get to choose them as a one-man show. But they're always trying to get towards being prepared for a guest. But if you say to me, what am I reading about now? It's this idea of decision making. And part of it is things that just like blow your mind where, you know, you you read something that says like intuition, your gut feeling is often wrong. (laughs) So for years, we've been hearing trust Trust your your gut. gut. Yeah. Trust your gut. And I think there's a time and place for that. But what the science says is. A lot of the times we're not right. And I, and I mean, think of bringing us all the way back to a coach. Think about a tryout situation. What is the system you have in place for tryouts? Hmm. Because I think a lot of us, and I've been there, we get to the point where we're threatened. I saw Bobby and I know Bobby can't play shortstop, but are you the one person that's making that decision? And if so, what's the system? I'm not saying rubrics are the, are always the answer. I'm not saying you have to have a team, but what is the system? And I think there's just many, many implications for that. So when I think if, if my intuition is sometimes wrong and I don't have a system for picking the team and then the parent comes down and complains and I'm the power, I'm in the power position. So I'm just going to say it's my team. Mm-hmm. And now we're all, all of a sudden back to Joe Ferraro, 1999, 21 years old, stubborn, no relationship with the parents. And I think that when you read as a 41-year-old or whatever age you are about these people smarter than me having systems for thinking, I just, I just say, wow, this, this is a $20 book that I can read and just imply, apply to my life immediately. So it's, it's a game changer for me. I feel like this next question is completely unfair because you're engineered on all these fronts, reader, podcaster, conversationalist. I mean, we can go down the the ways that you try to take in information that you and I discuss at length, but uh, maybe where do you pull your best information in terms of how you internalize and do you still read, but then have to converse about it so that it sticks? How are you engineered as a learner? You're right there. You're right there with me knowing, knowing how I tick. And and I can tell you a quick story to kind of illustrate this. If I had to boil it down, I, I would call it that I would say that I learned best from, from what I'll just call the domino effect or, or kind of connecting the dots. And, and here's a really quick anecdote that kind of gets me right in the sweet spot. So I, I subscribe to a few free newsletters. Okay. One of them comes out on Sunday. So I get this newsletter and it has three articles. One of the articles is a title of, of an article that says, Books Don't Work. Now, we just spent 10 minutes talking about how much books have meant to my life. <laughs> sure. And now this, on a newsletter that I trust, is linking me to another author saying books don't work. Well, I read the article. I actually get about a quarter of the way through the article. The guy's making some really interesting points that I've never considered before. Hmm. I stop in my tracks. I go to the bottom of my phone. I hit text. I text my friend Luke, curious guy, thinks about the world a little differently than me. I respect him. It's a Sunday in the summer. I say, hey, man, what do you think about this thesis? He says, this thesis is, is crazy. This is bananas. 
We, I'm a teacher. How can I get behind this? I said, well, read a little bit. Get back to me, <laughs> right? He reads a little bit. If he goes, so far, I'm not seeing a lot of backing up with science. I said, well, keep going. Make a long story short, he then says, based on what you're telling me, I think you would like this podcast. He shares me a podcast. I know the podcast, but I skipped this episode because it didn't sound like it was for me. He says, no, this is directly where you are. I listen to the podcast the following day. I text Luke back. I say, oh, my God, I got to read this book. And, oh, by the way, the man who read the books don't work. I need to get on the podcast. Wow. So what I've done without even knowing it, I didn't do this consciously. I didn't do this intentionally. I have supercharged my learning to a point where it's ridiculous. Like hmm. that is a fully immersed. How do I have the time for it? People ask me. It's become how my brain is wired. And I think that ultimately it answers the, the article's claim itself, which is books don't work if it's a passive process. Mm -hmm. But if I just told you through one article and I think you're, you know, your listeners are smart enough to tease out that there's a curation process. I don't subscribe to 70 newsletters. I trust this newsletter. Mm -hmm. The article caught my eye. I have a discerning taste at this point. I picked that article. I then go to a friend, not the, not the friend that I talked about earlier who says willpower doesn't work <laughs> sure. or does go to the right friend, the, the average of the five people. Now we have a community of learners happening. And now I'm literally excited about sharing this with you and who knows where it leads. And I don't know exactly how to frame that, but that would be the greatest clear snapshot I can give you hmm. of how I can learn at an unfair rate. Yeah, that's good. Um, so you've been around baseball a lot, obviously throughout you know majority of your life. Um, the best people you've been around, what qualities rise to the top in terms of how you define them or ways that you may challenge yourself to be better at X? What would you say the qualities of those best people are? Mm. Well, I was teared up the other day listening to you talk about your little league coach. You know, yeah. man, what a what a Bud Ritchie, if I'm not mistaken. Bud Ritchie, man, the man, the myth, the yeah. legend. I mean, knowing his name, I have to give Joe Kiefer a shout out. There he was is. my nine through twelve little league coach. By the way, I tell people this all the time. When I was in little league, if you made the majors, you played nine, ten, eleven, and twelve on the same team in the same league. Hmm. I don't know if that's done no. in other parts of the country right now, but I can only think of two words when I think of that law suit. <laughs> sure. 100%. I don't understand how I was supposed to hit Jason Groff when I was nine. I don't get it. He was 12, but I digress. Yes. Joe Kiefer ran little league practices like the Tom Amansky videos. Hmm. And I'm sure that people listening are going to hit me up and tell me his drills weren't work. They were eyewash, all this stuff. Well, there's not much eyewash when you're nine. Yeah. And when you're nine and he's teaching you the right way to throw and he's teaching you to hit on the tire and his practices are timed and he gave speeches after the games where your mom is beeping the horn saying dinner is ready and embarrassing you. But then I used to resent it at times it's like this is so much different than my friends. And you go home and your dad's like, do you know how lucky you are to have Joe Kiefer as your coach? Yeah. Some of these other coaches are literally throwing the balls out and just say, let's just like scrimmage for two hours. And you're nine years old trying to hit Jason Groff. So you're like, yeah, that would be fun. I want to get to the town pool. <laughs> sure. But when you look back, I think that, you know, I, I think of two C's that, well, I'll give you three C's. I think I, I didn't plan it this way, but it comes out in the way I could frame it, which is Joe Kiefer cared, right? Mm -hmm. He wasn't going through the motions. 
he he was competent, right? He wasn't just the dad and or the mom that was out there, you know, doing their best. And I have nothing but respect for those people. Mm-hmm. But I think the difference is if you have a truly competent coach, if you're lucky enough to have a truly competent coach, I think it can raise you exponentially. And then last but not least, communicate. You know, in one way or another, they told you they cared about you. Mm-hmm. They told you what was going to happen next. They told you the why. I mean, we have made it this far into the show yeah. without talking about the whys, which is a big, big part of everything you talk about. Mm-hmm. Certainly something that I've embraced, getting ahead of it with kids and saying this is why we're doing it. You don't have to like it, but I think you'll like it because of the reason why. So, you know, he's the first coach I think about. And I, and I don't think I can go further into the show without mentioning my dad who was right there by my side. I think he's a restaurant owner who decided if I'm going to be with my son a lot, I I better volunteer and be that coach. Even if I'm not totally competent yet, Mm. I'm going to learn from Joe. I'm going to learn from Roger. I'm going to learn from Ted, real coach's names. And he learned and he grew and he put his own spin on it. And then one thing we didn't mention was when I was 18, I was on an American Legion national championship team. And my dad was the assistant coach. He was doing the field and he was, yeah, leaving the restaurant after making scrambled eggs and he was taking his time on that hot field. And, and, uh, you know, ultimately the payoff was in, in August of 1996, we, we won the national title on a field in Roseburg, Oregon. And, uh, he and I are hugging on the middle of the field by the mound as the ESPN camera zoomed in. My mom taped it like three different times on VHS. Sure. Uh, and I'll be there next week and get a chance to peek at it with my dad and, you know, I think there's not an, it's not an accident sheets. I think there's, I've been very lucky. And you ask the question about baseball people, you know, when, when you're around these people, it, it's, it's not an accident. It, it was something that I was fortunate. I wish everybody had that experience, but, but for me, it, it kind of shaped me day in and day out. Oh, that's powerful stuff, man. Um, and I'm glad you got to reference that. Cause again, that goes back to just, uh, kind of further your perspective of the game, seeing the highs and the lows. Um, all right, these are quick hitters, but I definitely want some explanation so our listeners know where you're coming from. What's one thing you need to work on? The relationship between patience and urgency. Mm. Um, I, I referenced you know the podcast and how it's my own baby. Um, and then you look at it and you're proud of it. And I know people listening will hopefully check it out and, and, get, and it'll be a thrill. But then you look and you say, I have, I think I have 29 reviews on iTunes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you say to yourself, I've done uh, 98 episodes. People tell me they love it. It's a labor of love. But that next level of how do we grow it? How do we, how do we get more people listening so that more people can be impacted by what I've learned? And yet patience, like, is that even the point? Do I need to have 200? Like I heard something the other day that 500 reviews on iTunes. How is that even possible that you got 500 people to stop and and do that clunky algorithm? So, so I think like that patience and urgency of like, let's get something going, let's put it out, let's get better, but, but be patient, but not passive. So Mm -hmm. the reason that I I say I have to work on it is because I haven't thought through yet what each means because I don't want to let life pass me by. Right. You and I both know, I mean, I'm 41. I want to do things. I want to be better. I want to help people and, and trying to do that while not taking on too much. It's, it's been a challenge. So I I definitely could sense that I could need to work on that. There you go. Well, I have to open not up for that one too. That's definitely uh, on my list as well. Uh, The key to success is never stop learning. 
Okay. You know, I think that I heard recently as simple as it was said, um, when you stop learning, you get old. Yep. And, and I could think of people in my life that uh, I think are old because they, they don't want new ideas or they don't know how to get new ideas without feeling foolish. Mm. And that's one of the podcasts, Dolores, right? Like there are people, you know, that, that we know that, that don't know how to access podcasts. Yep. Well, that, that's not embarrassing. I have a lot of things I don't know about, mm-hmm. you know, there's things in my house that I don't know how to fix and I feel embarrassed, but I think the key to success is being a lifelong le- learner, whether you call it 1% better or you call it Kaizen or you call it watering the bamboo, whatever works and resonates for you. I'm intoxicated by the process of learning. And I think that it, it just so happens that as a teacher, if I can even give a, a, some of the dregs to my students of that, 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 that insightful, Hey, this could be fun. Let's make it fun. I think that's the key to success for me. Wow. Okay. Last one here. In the end, when our careers are over, it's all about what? Impact. Oof. In, impact. I think, you know, you, you can't undersell the importance of relationships. And I've heard this answer many mm-hmm. times on your show and I'm not going to fight it. But for me, I want to feel useful. I want, I think that might be deep down why, why you'll give your cell phone number out and why you do this podcast. I think you're looking not to put words in your mouth, but, but I'll, I'll speak for myself. I want to be useful to people. I want, I want to be a resource to people, but in the way that they need. So wherever someone is, do they need a book recommendation? I could do something like that. Do they need a personal phone call? I could do something like that. Mm-hmm. Do they need me to, do they need me to speak at their business? I could do something like that. I'm not going to be perfect. I'm not going to bring you the bells and whistles that someone else might, but can I be useful? Can I, can I share something that I've learned in 98 episodes of the podcast and 20 years in the classroom and 11 years of marriage and two kids? Is there something that I can do? And, and, and I think the answer has been yes, more often than not, um, because I never stopped learning. So hmm. in the end, for me, I want to impact people. Um, and years ago, I wanted it to be because I was the greatest X's and O's coach that ever lived. And today I just want to be useful. Wow. That's deep. I like it. Um, take us home on these last few. And I know you've offered so much inside this, but think about the best advice you've been given. Think about the, the inner mantra. And then what other advice do you have for anybody paying attention to this? What would you offer? Marry someone you like. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Marry someone you like. And I, I choose the word like on purpose. Um, it's easy to be in love in Disney World. You're riding the, the Pirates of the Caribbean ride with Matilda, <laughs> and it's a cool breeze coming in. And you jump the line, and you're together holding hands. Yeah, but that's a little fleeting. How do you do in that one-bedroom apartment when you're trying to scratch out the income by working at baseball camp? Mm-hmm. You go home, the air, air conditioner's not working, and you're sitting there and saying, it's 95 degrees with humidity and it's a Tuesday morning and my partner has no makeup on. Love is one thing. Mm -hmm. Like is another. Do you like the person? Do you want to be with them when the romance is, is dormant for a moment? That, that, that idea of love, we, we do love each other. We tell each other, I love you, man. I, I get all that. But do you also like the person enough to spend time with them? And so many of our coaches have zero shot of achieving what they're achieving without a support unit at home. Sure. And sometimes many times on the road. And it's, it, you know, some of the best coaches I've seen, it's very clear to me that they not only love that partner, 
but they like that partner. They like being with them and that person's adding a great deal. So I think that's something that, that stuck with me for a long, long time. That is some good, good stuff. Um, okay. So how can people get in touch with you? Where can they find you? Give me the handles, the emails, all that good stuff. How can people get in touch? I think the best is, uh, is social media at Ferraro on air, F E R R A R O on air. Um, I think I, I invented that Twitter handle before I had any clue where I was going. <laughs> some days I like it. Some days I hate it, but uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram and I kind of use it as one-stop shopping. The email address for now is still Gmail. So it's get 1% better at gmail.com. That's mm-hmm. O N E and the website, um, which is pretty good, but, uh, you know, could be better is 1% better project.com. That's O N E percent better project.com. But I, I just, I think that if you reach out and you don't hear from me within 48 hours, something has happened to me because <laughs> if I'm going to tell you, I want to be useful. And I, in fact, you've let, you've seen that, right? If uh-huh. I don't respond to you, you'll give me a gif or two. Yeah. Um, if I'm going to try to make an impact, if I'm going to try to be useful, if I'm going to try to be humble and the things that I've learned, uh, you reach out to me, I will get back to you. And I would love it if someone listened to a podcast episode. Do not go back to episode one. <laughs> I don't think you give that recommendation no, to people, right? Like, no. don't start at the beginning and try to do all 140. Yep. Pick someone you think would be an interesting episode, and you're going to miss a lot of good ones that way because there's some great sleeper episodes on your podcast and certainly on mine. But I, I, just like you, one thing we share for sure, I, I love hearing from people and, and seeing how I can help them. That's it. Well, an easy choice for the show. I think we laughed, we cried, we established Bagel Fridays here in the office. We've we've gone through a lot. Uh, but Joe, more than that, man, when we look through the association and how diverse our group is, you're certainly one that uh, has helped me personally, but I knew that could bring serious value to our show and certainly bring it to our coaching community. So Joe, thanks for jumping on with us, my friend. We wish you the best of luck at 1%, and we hopefully see you in Nashville, my friend. That's the plan. You've laid out an ironclad case. Um, I know I embarrassed you at the top of the show by saying that uh, I'm a member largely because of you, but I stand behind it and I'm going to continue be, to be a member because of the great work that you guys do. It was an absolute thrill to be on today, man. And thank you guys so much for investing a little bit of your time to, to listen to something I might have said. Coaches, thanks again for checking out our Calls from the Clubhouse podcast and another one of our Dugout Chatter episodes. Here at the American Baseball Coaches Association, our mission is to serve coaches around the world. So please let us know how we can help you out. Head over to our website, abca.org. If you're looking for more information about our baseball coaching fraternity, you could also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find us at ABCA1945. If you want to reach out to me directly, I'd love to hear from you. You can do that on Twitter and Instagram at CoachSheets3 or shoot me an email at Sheets, S-H-E-E-T-S, at ABCA.org. We would love to hear from our loyal members. We'd even love to hear from some new ones as we continue to find new ways to work together at growing the game of baseball. Huge thanks to the sponsor of these Dugout Chatter episodes, our longtime partners over at Rawlings. So if you want more information about what they're doing for baseball and this association, head over to their website, Rawlings.com. That's Rawlings, R-A-W-L-I-N-G-S.com. And thanks again for your support of this podcast. As always, thanks for listening in and staying dialed into our Calls from the Clubhouse podcast. Until next week, we ask you to keep growing, you keep developing, you keep challenging yourself inside this game. We wish you and your club the very best, and thank you for what you're doing for the game of baseball.